the HD Movie Podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And today we have a movie double bill. We have two movies directed by Amy Heckeline, one from 1989, one from 1990. In a short while we'll be discussing Look Who's Talking 2, but before that, the movie that kickstarted it all, Look Who's Talking. It's double bill time, and the first of the double bill is 1989's Look Who's Talking, which stars John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, and of course, Bruce Willis as the voice of a baby. Doesn't even get more bizarre than that. So the 80s had quite a trend of baby movies, especially towards the uh, late 80s, and of course we've covered Three Men and a Baby, but there were several other films of the same type of brand at that time, and I think Look Who's Talking was trying to be a more subversive take on the rom-com, which we will get into. But first things first, we have got to have a synopsis. And not only does he do shark movies, he also deals with baby movies too. This synopsis is, of course, written by the one, the only, Nick Reganis. Double-crossed, the lovelorn and very pregnant New York City accountant Molly gets into James's cab and rushes to the hospital to give birth after a failed attempt at love with a sleazy and self-centred businessman. Suddenly, she is a single working mother, and what is even more disheartening is that she has to embark on the nearly impossible quest to unearth the ideal father for her outspoken son, Mikey. Could it be James? Could it be James? Well, if you watch this rom-com and get to about 45 minutes in and think it probably isn't going to be James, then how many rom-coms have you actually watched? in your entire life. From the start, it's a fairly standard setup where it's kind of meat cutes And from minute one, it's clear that Molly shouldn't be with Albert, who is a fairly sleazy guy played by George Siegel, who is supposedly in love with her, but really she's just really his bit on the side. So you get John Travolta's character, James, coming in, who has a lot of experience of raising kids because he had a lot of sisters. It's made clear in the plot and he's trying to be very nice to her. Even though at the start you get the usual thing where he thinks she's a bit crazy because she's pregnant in his cab and all sorts of rom-com related japes ensue. Absolutely. So this is an unconventional rom-com because normally it's boy meets girl, boy gets girl, boy marries girl. But in this one, there's a baby straight away. So we've kind of skipped all the casual dating side of it and we get straight to the family situation, which is a bit different. I came to this movie quite young in my life 
I was about five or six years old and we recorded it off ITV. It was playing one Christmas and I believe it used to play on ITV quite regularly. A little side note, which is a story that I'd like to tell, is the VHS copy that I have, which is taped from ITV. It was during uh, December, I believe, of 95 or maybe 96. And it was one of those times where the news cuts in towards the end of the movie. And there was a big sort of news bulletin announcement to say that uh, Prince Charles and Princess Diana were going to get a divorce. So that is on my copy of Look Who's Talking, just in case anyone's interested. Well, there you go. Yes. So you get a rom-com, a fledgling relationship and the end of one in one take. (laughs) It's weird how films used to get screened on commercial channels. You would get bits of news fed into it. I'm sure there was coverage of disasters and all manner of dreadful things in quite light-hearted movies. But that's what you get when you were watching them on channels with ads. Also, interesting thing about the release of the movie in the UK was that originally it was a 12 certificate. But at the time, there was no 12 certificate on video. So anything at that point that was rated 12 in the cinema had to be given the highest certificate on video. So when it first came out on video in this country, it was given a 15. So if you wanted to rent Look Who's Talking at the video shop, you had to be 15 years old, which is kind of bizarre, really, because, yes, it's got some reasonably adult bits in it, but it's not a 15-year-old's movie. But this is what happened in Britain in the 80s. Once we got all the video nasties and the censorship, it was a bit of a lottery and... A lot of things were kind of 15s that shouldn't have been, and then Batman came along, and that kind of ushered in the 12 certificate. From then on, there was a gap of about four or five years, I think, before the 15 certificate came in on video, because they had to change legislation, so that didn't happen very quickly. So if you look at old copies, well, old UK copies anyway, of Look Who's Talking, and see that there's a 15 certificate on it. That is not a misprint. It actually was a 15-rated movie at one point in time. Yeah, I'm glad you cleared that up for me, because I definitely had that in mind. So, as I've explained, I initially watched it off TV, so it was probably edited to a point as well. But when I used to see the copies in video stores, I was really surprised that it was a 15 rating. And of course, I was thinking I saw a 15 rated movie when I was like five or six. That is crazy. As a film, Look Who's Talking is interesting as it's not quite the wholesome family comedy you're expecting. It has a lot more adult themes and raunchy aspects to it. So it's not that clear cut. It's a bit of a grey area. So it's not quite PG. It's not quite 15. So I think, yeah, 12 certificate is the right certificate for it, especially reevaluating it now. It was a film that my mum really enjoyed. And we were both fans of John Travolta. Like He was one of the first major Hollywood stars that I remember because I'd seen Greece prior to that. And that was the reason that I watched it. But looking back, it was probably had a lot of risque subject matters. And I always like to throw this in when I talk about this film. So it begins with a fertilisation scene. (laughs) I suppose that's the best way to describe it. Where this egg is getting fertilised by sperm because obviously it's about the birth of a baby. And naive child me thought that that was uh, tadpoles. 
as I'm sure many <laughs> many kids did if they came to this very young. That's fair enough, and that's a much sweeter view of that because at the start, I mean, when I watched this, I didn't go see it at the cinema. I watched it on video, and at the start, I just thought, yeah. I can understand why they've chucked it in because it might be slightly amusing, but also it's, you know, is that really necessary to go through the entire title sequence with this going on? I guess somebody found it amusing. I don't particularly because it just seems unnecessary. Uh, the rest of the movie, it kind of veers between quite interesting and tone deaf <laughs> and... <laughs> It's got a lot of bits in this movie which really have not stood up to the test of time. I don't remember watching it all those years ago and being particularly upset by it, but maybe I wasn't really concentrating on it because at the time I don't think it was my movie and I kind of watched it because it was a hit and everybody else was going on about it. But it does seem to have a fixation on certain things. Lesbians seem to be an unnecessary target in this movie. Olympia Dukakis, who is Kirstie Alley's character's mum, when she finds out that she's pregnant and there's no guy on the scene, she says something along the lines of, this is the kind of thing a girl does if she's ugly or a lesbian. And at that point in the movie, I was like, oh, okay, that wasn't pleasant <laughs> at all. And later on, when she's in the cab with John Travolta, he's kind of saying, is your husband around? And she said, oh, no, I've got no husband. And she said, oh, is there a boyfriend? And, and she said, no, there's no boyfriend. And to react to that, he just says, oh, what are you, a lesbo? And I'm thinking, well, I guess maybe in 1989, that might have raised a giggle. I think now it's like dropping a canteen of cutlery down a set of stairs. Don't get me wrong, there are some funny moments in this, but there are gags which really belong in the late 80s. I can't complain with a 2022 head on it because it's a 33-year-old movie and there was stuff like this littering movies in the 80s. So this isn't the only offender. And for me to go after it in particular probably isn't the greatest of ideas because it's a fairly innocuous movie. I mean, it does have a joke about the exorcist as Kirstie Alley wanting some drugs and she has this exorcist voice, which it's kind of fun. It's a, it's a bit of a throwback. I, I'm in two minds about Look Who's Talking because it tries something different on one hand, but on the other hand, it's so inoffensive and it's so by the numbers that you're kind of waiting for something that you don't get in the end. And the weird thing is that the central selling point, which is the fact that the baby has the voice of Bruce Willis, they don't use that quite as much as you think they're going to do. It's used, but it's not kind of overly done, considering that it was the selling point in the trailer. And you do get a fair bit of Bruce Willis, but you don't get a ton of him. It's more to do with the burgeoning relationship between Molly and James. And he kind of puts in the asides. But, I mean, the Bruce Willis stuff is fine. But you don't really get it exploited as much as you think they're going to. Yeah, I definitely felt that on a rewatch as well. So this is a movie I have seen many times over the years. And I think it is based on pure nostalgia. I came to it very young. So it's going to hit a note with me in that respect. But as you said about like the lesbian jokes, they do not land well. They would have gone over my head when I first watched it. 
there's parts of it that still holds up but as i say i don't know if i'm basing that on pure nostalgia so it, it's a difficult one there's also a racially insensitive joke as well that I, I think both me and my husband Phil, when we were watching it, we were like quite taken aback. It's a scene near the beginning um, after Mikey is born and all the babies are all in their little, I don't know if it's incubators as such, but they're in these little plastic beds that they put babies in after birth. And there is a stereotypical Indian accent on one of the babies. And I just thought that one was a bit below the belt. Yeah, at that point, I'd forgotten about the sequence where all the babies are together. And it starts off and they're all, he says, like, I've got to get my own place because they're all talking over each other. And it's like, and that's quite fun. And you're right, though, then the Indian voice comes in and I just thought, oh, no. Oh, no, this is terrible. Oh, God, please let it stop. Also, later on in the movie, they use the R word as well to describe somebody's mental state. And I had completely forgotten they used that word. And when it came up late on in the movie, I thought, oh, shit, they didn't go there, did they? Yes, they did go there. And again, different times. I'm not excusing this movie for using that word, but it wasn't the only movie to use that word. I am not going to use the word here on the podcast, but it was a moment in which I clenched up. It was like, oh, no, oh, God, they've used that word. These things were being thrown about with abandon back then. It doesn't make it right, but that's what was happening. Yeah, I mean, there are nice points in this movie. There's some good details because they haven't made Kirstie Alley's character this very glamorous New Yorker who has this fabulous lifestyle and this like great, glamorous, fabulous, interesting job. They've made her an accountant, which is quite interesting. It's a shame that for so many things that this movie gets right in terms of detail and quirkiness there's something else coming underneath it to chop its legs out from under it and undermine it it's a strange movie coming to it from several years down the line it still works the concept's still okay but the plot is kind of all over the shop it throws various things in like um james has got a grandpa who is in a home. It's about dealing with a parent that's kind of, his mental capacity is a bit diminished. And then there's this thing about James trying to get another job and there's all this kind of dating stuff going on with Molly. So it throws quite a lot of stuff in there. Maybe because it thinks, well, some of it might stick, some of it won't. The plot bubbles along quite well, but when you've got so much stuff going on, the fact that quite a lot of it seems inconsequential in some way is slightly odd. They even throw in a plot halfway through it, well, a bit further than halfway through it, where the baby goes missing. And that's quite interesting because at that point, no mobile phones, so they're trying to find where the baby is. It's safe, by the way. You don't need to worry about it. These days, they'd have just called everybody up on the mobile to find out where it was. So it's an interesting point about it being set at that period of time where they don't know and they can't just call somebody up to find out i mean i enjoy that kind of detail from movies that were were set in the past and come from the past there's just weird stuff going on in this movie i love the sequence where kirstie alley has this fantasy about how her life could go and she's got loads of kids and her and john travolta are real slobs it's a really funny moment if they'd have had more stuff 
like that and less stuff where they're just trying to lob anything in just for the sake of it. I think I'd have enjoyed it more. I didn't hate it. Didn't hate it at all. But coming back to it, I just kind of thought this movie was a hit. I understand why it was a hit. But for me, it was like, oh, God, there's like so much in this movie that's just odd. Yeah, it's definitely an odd movie. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to it a bit more because <laughs> for me, I'm not really interested in like the kind of conventional rom-coms. When we've approached Hallmark films, my eyes are rolling. But with this one, I think it's the chemistry between John Travolta and Kirstie Alley is just really genuine. And you can buy into it that these people genuinely like each other. They're quite well fleshed out characters. You get a lot of background about both of them. The plot at some points unfolds very organically, but at other times it does have this strange quirkiness just thrown in out of left field, like you have many dream sequences as the one that you just explained. There's even a great one where Molly confronts her ex, Albert, who is the biological father of Mikey, where he's begging for a second chance and he says he, he's going to blow if um, she doesn't kiss him and then you see his head explode and of course that is just like a fantasy sequence but it just kind of comes out of nowhere. There is a lot of nightmare fuel in this film as well I have to say I remember particularly five-year-old me was very creeped out by the puppet of the baby fetus at the start and it still just looks very strange. <laughs> Yeah, it does have a bit of the uncanny valley about it, the baby, because it's that sort of thing where they've tried to render it as best they can, but there's something about it that's just slightly off. It does project a slightly creepy vibe to it. This sort of movie, they had high concept comedies, and this was very high concept. And I think that it delivers what general cinema audiences want. I think you can pick holes in it and say, well, it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And if you're trying to just blow holes in it, yes, you can do. But overall, you can see why people went for this. And you're absolutely right about Kirstie Alley and John Travolta. They have really good chemistry. And they're the two people that keep it watchable when it's going through all the rough patches because they do genuinely look like they're enjoying themselves and that they get on well and there is chemistry and they bounce off each other really well and they keep things interesting because when they're on screen together there is some kind of well I wouldn't say magic but there's something extra when they're on screen so that sort of rescues the movie because when it's dragging a little bit or when it's going down a blind alley that it doesn't really need to go down at least you have those two performances at the centre of it all grounding it. So it isn't the complete and utter waste of time that you might think it is for a 30-odd-year-old weird rom-com. You could do a far worse than Look Who's Talking. Well, we're going to find out how far worse you could do fairly shortly, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I still really enjoyed this movie. I, you know, I, as I say to you, I think I am going into it rose-tinted glasses for sure, but it's a comfort movie. It's one that is so easy to watch and there's nothing too challenging in it. Another thing that struck me, though, this is kind of an interesting way to look back at the past. So those listeners who don't know, I had a baby last year. As far as I'm aware, she doesn't have a celeb voice talking over her. I haven't figured that out yet. But 
I was just finding it very interesting how things have changed so much in terms of health and safety when it comes to parenting. So, for example, there's a scene where Mikey's quite small and he's in the cot and he's surrounded by stuffed animals. That's a big no-no. Like, you never leave your child unattended with soft toys in a crib. That just doesn't happen. So there was that. And then, of course, the scene where all the babies are taken from the parents after birth and they're all in one room together. Like, that doesn't seem to happen now. Um, I can confirm that happened when I was born. And I was actually born the year this film came out. So things were just very different in the 80s. If your kid does have uh, a celeb voice, who do you think it's going to be? Oh, that's a good question. I'd have to get back to you on that. <laughs> I think somebody very sassy. <laughs> Someone who can definitely talk back. <laughs> but saying that with the, with the voice, um, I think Bruce Willis does a great job. I mean, what I find hilarious is I love Bruce Willis as an actor. I mean, we've covered the whole Die Hard franchise. And he was fresh out of Die Hard when he uh, voiced Mikey in this film. And he does a phenomenal job. And this is the first movie that I'd actually heard him in, I suppose, the first time I was aware of Bruce Willis. So I kind of heard his voice before, like, putting that face and name together. So that I think that's quite interesting, just based on where I was born and that type of thing and when, when I came to these movies. So, of course, this was the movie that actually revived John Travolta's career. So um, the filmmakers were unsure about casting him at first because he'd appeared in so many flops between Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and then Look Who's Talking. And people didn't see him as a bankable star anymore, but this revived his career. And so many people credit that to Pulp Fiction but it was actually Look Who's Talking, which again is so interesting how that set him on the path to success again. And of course, him and Bruce Willis appear together in a very different scene in pop fiction. Yeah, that one doesn't end well, certainly. <laughs> but yeah, it's good to see John Travolta on screen. And he's certainly an actor with tons of charisma and he can do drama, he can do comedy, he can clearly do dancing. He's a good male lead in this because... He's slightly less bland than you would normally get in this kind of movie. He's got a bit of an edge to him. He's got a bit of a cheeky twinkle in his eye. So he's the perfect guy to spark off Kirsty Alley because they're both quite feisty in their own ways. Molly isn't any pushover. She takes absolutely no shit. She says it's all about the happiness of her kids. She doesn't really care about ending up with a guy as long as the kid's happy, which is kind of a nice way of looking at it. You also know that by the end of it, she's probably going to end up with somebody and it isn't going to be George Siegel because from the start, I mean, George Siegel plays a really good creep, but you know that surely that she isn't going to end up with him and, spoiler alert, she doesn't. One thing you do get in this movie, if you're a fan of continuity, or rather continuity foul-ups, there's tons of them in this movie. If you look in the background, I mean, I'm, I'm usually absolutely terrible at spotting these things, but if you look in the background, things disappear, they reappear. I mean, there's a fight sequence between George Siegel and John Travolta in which things get smashed twice, stuff vanishes from the background and then it comes back. The continuity was all over the place in this movie. Now, I don't care about that sort of stuff. You know, if somebody said, oh, you, you realise that the 
shirt in the background was red when it started and then like 20 seconds later if you look hard it's blue for like two seconds and then it goes back to red i do not give a shit about that sort of stuff but it was interesting that quite a bit of the stuff in look and stalking when i was drawn to the background I was like thinking well that wasn't there before hang on a minute that's disappeared if you want to check continuity errors this is a good one i'm not big on that but there's quite a lot there if you want to look at them yeah, I think that adds to the quirky nature of this film unintentionally, of course. <laughs> so, yeah, I think what's really nice in this movie is, again, the portrayal of the father, because you've got both ends of the spectrum portrayed in here. You've got the deadbeat dad, the the sleazeball, who has basically just abandoned this woman because he is not in a position to commit, even though he has got other children as well with his first wife, and he's also sleezing on some other woman he is just an abhorrent character but then you've got James who is completely willing to take on somebody else's child as his own but it just feels probably the most authentic portrayal of this I think that I've personally seen because you can just tell how much love he has for that little boy and how it doesn't matter to him that they're not biologically related it's like that's his son and I think it's really well put across in this film. I think as I, I spoke in Three Men and a Baby again, I thought it was a positive portrayal of fatherhood because it always focuses on the mother. But again, we've got a more positive portrayal of the man's role in the child's life. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah, And it does. It's a positive movie overall. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. It may not get everything right. And certainly something's as we've spoken about before, some of the attitudes it has, it gets very wrong. But its heart is in the right place, which counts for a lot. And you do get quite a warm feeling with this movie. It's fun. And from the start, it's nice to know that the stakes aren't that high in terms of the outcome, because you know that Molly's going to be all right, whatever. So... There's some amount of comfort from that because you know that even if Molly doesn't end up with James, she's still going to be a good mum. The kid's going to have a loving household. So the fact that they've dialed down the stakes a little bit is quite nice for Hollywood movie because everything is usually all or nothing that they end up with an amazing lifestyle or they're completely destroyed. And this doesn't go there, which I think is quite nice. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on that. And another positive point about this film, it has a brilliant soundtrack. They must have had quite a lot of budget to have some of the music they include in this. So they've got a lot of the Beach Boys, they've got uh, Bee Gees in it. There's like a ton of very recognisable popular songs in this and in its sequel as well, which we'll talk about obviously in the next section of this episode. But that brings us to talking amusingly about the end credit sequence. <laughs> so... <laughs> the movie wraps up and of course spoiler alert molly and james get together after the stressful ordeal of mikey going missing and then they find him unscathed and then he goes dada that's it they're gonna get together they kiss roll credits then we get a cut scene so where we see where the family are at and there's a new baby just arrived mikey has a little sister voiced by joan rivers in this sequence and it's just a very nice way to round things off. And then you've got the end credit sequence. So you have the end credit song and then that finishes. And you've got, I think, about 30 seconds of pure silence at the end of the movie, which 
I did not realise, I must have turned this movie off years ago at the end credit sequence rather than carried on playing it because I've never noticed that before. And it's really unsettling. But in a logical point of view, I think it's just because they run out of the song rights, probably. Probably, yeah. It is weird. And you know what? It's not 30 seconds. It's 90. Oh, my God. It's even longer. <laughs> I actually sat through this time and just thought, something surely is going to kick in at some point. We're just going to have some kind of incidental music to round it off. No. Nope, dead silence for the last minute and a half of this movie as the credits just roll. I was thinking towards the end, is somebody going to say something? Is there going to be a voice cut in? Are you going to have a bit more mic-y? No, nope, just 90 seconds of dead silence, which just makes the end of the movie so spooky. I wonder if anybody that was sitting in the cinema was just creeped out by it. You're sitting there and, and Pete Townsend's song finishes, and then nothing comes on the back of that. It's just dead air in the in the movie. And I mean, it was unsettling watching it at home on the TV. It was like, God, like, no, lack of sound is quite worrying. Certainly, we've watched a lot of horror films. Yeah. And the fact that they can make lack of sound absolutely terrifying because you don't know what's going to come next. It's kind of the same here because you think, well, they're gonna, <laughs> is there going to be a kind of a sudden noise at the end? It just cuts off and there's nothing. And I just don't expect that anymore because everything has to be filled. You know, you don't want 90 seconds of complete and utter silence. It's a weird decision. But you're right, it might have been that, like, do we put another song on? Well, we'd have to pay for another song and we've only got 90 seconds left. But you'd think that they'd put some kind of incidental music or somebody would be just you know say can you dash us off a 90 second piece of music it just needs to be at the end of the movie and it just needs to be in this kind of style it's an odd way of rounding off a movie maybe they just thought oh nobody's gonna hang around for the credits once they've found out that he's got a sister they'll get up and they'll walk out but for anybody who stays it's an unsettling experience i'd recommend people sit there and then get to the point and then you know, listen to this like 90 seconds of absolutely nothing. Yeah, maybe we're waiting for a jump scare of puppet babies <laughs> to return or something at the end. Yeah, it was so weird. It really weirded me out because I think, again, it's one of those movies that I feel like I'm so familiar with. That just took me back completely. I was not expecting that whatsoever. It, it was very odd. And I can't really think of any other film off the top of my head that's done that, where it's just gone completely silent. Like, you'd get, like, a main song to keep people invested in part of the credits and then it might go into instrumental music or something but nope you just get pure silence and i don't know what's up with that i think there's been the odd kind of horror movie which has had no sound over the end at all but this just seems weirder because it's quite a jolly tune it's boogieing along and and everything's happy and everything's rolling and then it fades out and then nothing just a, a void of silence and to keep on the spooky track while we're talking, if any of you guys remember the good old days of IMDb message boards, I always remember reading on the Look Who's Talking ones, like people asking about the ghost in the background. Now, clearly it was just people confusing it with Three Men and a Baby, which we have covered, as I've previously said. Mm. People were convinced that it happened again in this film as well, but I've never seen any specifics on that. There's not been a particular frame that anyone has actually pinpointed. So I think people were just getting confused, like 80s baby movies, I guess. 
that's fair enough. I think you can confuse one and the other. In fact, I was talking to somebody earlier today about recording this and I was saying, oh, I'm doing Look Who's Talking. And they went, oh, the one with Steve Guttenberg in it. And I was like, nope. But Steve Guttenberg was actually considered for the role of James, weirdly enough. Oh, that's quite interesting to know. But yeah, I can see why people get things confused because they were in the same sort of time frame. It's kind of a similar plot. It's very baby-centric. So I can't blame people for thinking that there was a ghost in the background of this one. When there clearly isn't, but I can understand why people got that sort of confusion. I think the ghost definitely cut the music at the end credits, though. So let, let's roll <laughs> with that. Let's create our own urban legend here. <laughs> okay, to round things off on Look Who's Talking 1989, IMDb have given it a 5.9 out of 10, and Rotten Tomatoes has a 55% tomato meter and a 47% audience score. I'm not sure where I fall on this because as I say, I do still very much enjoy this movie, but I don't think it's the best movie ever made. It's a movie I can always return to and I can enjoy, apart from the questionable elements we've discussed. But I think it's above average, but it's not phenomenal in any, any way. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I think the scars reflect that it's straight down the middle, basically, which is okay. And I think that if you... This is a cop-out, but I think that if you like this sort of thing, you'll really like it. If you're going in thinking, this is the sort of thing I am going to hate, it's probably not going to win you over by the end. But if you're going with an open mind, there's plenty to enjoy. There's a few things that you will cringe at. There's no doubt about this. But it's got enough positive angles on it. The performances are really good, specifically the two leads. And it hangs together pretty well, even though it does try to throw everything but the kitchen sink into the plot. And overall, you could do a lot worse. It's a decent movie. It hasn't aged terribly apart from the stuff that we've talked about. It's quite fun. It's quite sweet. You won't be rolling in the aisles. It's not hilarious, but it is funny. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the best way to sum it up. After 1989's Look Who's Talking, we now have 1990's Look Who's Talking 2, again directed by Amy Hecklin, again starring Kirstie Alley and John Travolta and the voice of Bruce Willis. And again, I have a synopsis for you written by the one, the only, Nick Reganus, still on that baby movie trend after the sharks, excited with the arrival of their new baby daughter, Judy. James, the cab driver, and Molly, the accountant, will have to prepare Mikey for the role of Big Brother. Against the backdrop of rigorous potty training, <laughs> heated arguments, and first and foremost, healthy sibling rivalry, both adults and children alike will learn that family is above all. Will Julie follow in Mikey's footsteps? I mean, Nick always has a knack for making these movies sound slightly better than what they are. Did we need a sequel to this? Did we need a movie about potty training? Well, stay tuned, people, and we will let you know our thoughts. I did like the opening bit. It's very stupid, but you get the TriStar horse with its own voice at the start. <laughs> and I actually did laugh. I still laugh at that now. It's a really stupid joke, but I still laugh at the TriStar horse. 
So you get to hear what he's thinking when he's jumping over the TriStar sign and stuff. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is probably one of the best bits in the movie, and it hasn't even started. Yeah, that was actually Bruce Willis as well doing that that voice. Um, I guess that is quite a funny moment considering it is about, you know, a talking baby that is not like a normal occurrence as far as we're aware. I mean, babies could have really intellectual thoughts for all we know. But yeah, to see the TriStar horse doing that, I think, yeah, I always remember that that bit from as a kid and I used to think it was funny then. And it, it still does hit a note. But yeah, so we, we get into the movie and of course... It's a very weird conception sequence to begin with, because I don't know how I feel. I find I found this one really awkward to watch because the diaphragm is in and it's about the sperm determined to get through this diaphragm. Watching it, you think, well, this is basically proven that diaphragms are not actually 100% safe. And we're supposed to like be happy about this that there's a woman who clearly does not want to get pregnant, yet she's going to be forced into it. Yeah, it's quite odd. Someone to start off. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. And it kind of feels like assault in a really odd way because they're trying to break yeah. through. He's going, oh, I can get through here and stuff. And it's quite aggressively done. And you, I'm sitting there thinking, hmm, yeah, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the start of this. Considering it's supposed to be a light-hearted, fun romp, the fact that you've got these aggressive sperms saying, yeah, I can get through here, I can get through here. I understand what they were trying to go for. It doesn't work. It comes off as, and I'm, I'm going to have to say it, it comes off as a bit rapey. I'm sorry, it does. Yeah, and you're not the first person to have said that. There's definitely articles online that have really reviewed this movie. And just watching it, I was thinking, well, if you're somebody who's actively using protection, then this is not a good advert for it at all. Because how it doesn't even explain how this has happened. And then it goes straight into she's quite heavily pregnant. And we, we just kind of move very quickly. But whether this was just Amy Hecklin's rebuttal of having to make this film, that she wanted to make it as shit as possible because she didn't want to make it at all, I, I don't know. So... For those of you who don't know, the backstory of this is Look Who's Talking was a sleeper hit, huge success. So, of course, the studios are like, come on, let's make another one, you know, let's milk this cow for all it's worth. And Amy Heflin was, like, done with the story, and it, it is wrapped up. I think, you know, we leave it on a positive note. They've got their little family unit. So they're going to have a happy life. We don't necessarily need to see anymore, but it delivers that, quite literally, and I think she made this movie it was rushed out i don't think they had time to breathe when creating this film so it is a bunch of random sequences kind of stitched together awkwardly i just don't think this film works but saying that i think it is one of the most watchable bad movies i've ever seen that's true it's an interestingly shot and put together movie and i think you're right Amy Hecklin, because she was pushed into a corner about making this movie, there's a fair bit of this movie which is quite subversive in its own way. I mean, I love Amy Hecklin's movies. I mean, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, absolute classic. Clueless, classic. She's a great director. She knows what she's doing. But this bears all the hallmarks of a movie that they didn't have enough time to prepare. They just rushed it out. And so it is all over the place and they're trying to throw things in 
that are different to the previous movie, yet still stick to the formula in some way. They have to retcon the end of the first one, because it's not Joan Rivers anymore, it's Roseanne Barr, so they have to go back and then deal with the pregnancy in a different way. So if you went to the end of the first movie and thought, oh, you're going to get Joan Rivers. No, you're not going to get Joan Rivers in this movie. You've got Roseanne Barr. Not a problem. doesn't matter that Roseanne Barr's doing the voice, but there's a fairly large amount of plot restructuring at the start of this to get her back into the situation where she's pregnant with the second kid. I said the first one was weird in a lot of ways. The second one is weird in about a thousand more ways than the first one. There are things in there that I guess if you were trying it out in some sort of comedy venue, it might work. But it's just full of stuff that you think either who came up with this or should this be in a 12 rated movie? Because there's one point at which there is an argument about certain deductible taxes for a failing vegetarian restaurant. And the failing vegetarian restaurant is called, and I kid you not, Eat Me Raw. And at that point, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. If it had been in a 15 or 18 rated movie, I would have probably giggled at that point. But this is in a family comedy about raising kids. And you've got that in there. And I don't care that it's kind of, oh, we're going to throw something in for the mums and dads. Mums and dads don't want to hear that sort of joke in a movie. I really don't think they do. When you get something that's got as depraved and as filthy a mind as I have with the movies that I watch, when you get somebody like me going, no, that's too much, you've crossed the line. (laughs) There is imagery in this film that I don't think I will ever get out of my mind for as long as I live. Put it that way. We've discussed the really disturbing conception scene but intercut with that is a scene where we are introduced to Mikey again he's about two years old three years old somewhere around that mark before I get into what I'm going to talk about though I have to point out it's a different child actor that looks nothing like the child in Look Who's Talking so it's as if this child has had a new head I don't know if this child is Doctor Who or what but it has a new head or he has a new head I should say and the opening sequence where we meet him is where Bruce Willis is doing the voiceover and he's trying to work out what's real, what isn't, whether Santa Claus is real or are aliens real, that type of stuff. He's going through it in his head because he's on his own in his room, it's dark. And then he gets visions of his toys coming to life. And I saw this on a review on YouTube about it. That They basically described it as this film has turned into Puppet Master. Yeah. <laughs> it literally does. Yeah, it's true. And it's like, why? You have a teddy bear with, like, knives coming out of it like, as claws <laughs> and this, like, devil thing with red eyes. And I remember seeing this as a kid and being like, what am I watching? Because it is, it just goes into brief horror territory without warning. Yeah, absolutely. It's a brilliant horror sequence. If it had been in a horror movie, I'd have thought, this is great, I love this sequence. doesn't belong in this movie at all. I suppose it's that whole thing how kids can overemphasise things and are sensitive and they don't, you know, their brains are developing, they don't fully understand 
and it's that kind of nightmare sequence you know a kid having like i do i do kind of get it but at the same time as an audience it makes you think okay what movie have i stepped into right now and it keeps that kind of tone throughout yeah it's riding the edge of something that really isn't a kid's movie at all for most of it because you get eddie who is mikey's best friend who is voiced by damon wayans but they make eddie into a bit of a player because he's going on about the you know he's saying like check out the blonde over there in kindergarten it's like really really do do we need that i don't think we do when damon wayans good actor funny guy but he's kind of this well he's he's almost like the sort of well I mean, he's not pimping out the girls at kindergarten, but he's kind of this sort of, yes, I'm I'm the man and I've got all the chicks and stuff. It's like, he's just a kid. We don't need to drag it down that route. And I know that they're kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, they're behaving like adults a little bit. Isn't that fun? No, that's just creepy. It's a very creepy movie. I think when you strip it down and look at it for what it is, it is a very much creepy film that has no business being a family movie. As I say, I, I just generally think Amy Hecklin was pissed off and just made this, just whatever crap came into her mind, she just threw it together. So, of course, logically, at the age Mikey is, he is going to be learning potty training. And so this is a very minor subplot in the film because it's very much featured at the beginning and then, <laughs> wait for it, it just goes into bizarre territory. And then it's not really resolved until the end of the movie after we've had no kind of discussion about it for a while. So John Falter and Kirstie Alley try to introduce this pop to him, try to make it fun by singing songs. They do a rendition of the Beastie Boys. I think if you're not into toilet humour, this is going to turn you off straight away as well. And then, as you say, his friend Eddie is kind of saying, oh, yeah, if you do the potty training, you'll get the girls and all this is all about growing up and... And then, of course, Mikey has this fear of the toilet. And as I say, this image I will never get out of my head for as long as I live. And that is Mr. Toilet Man. Darren, do you want to elaborate on Mr. Toilet Man? Mr. Toilet Man. Again, it's kind of venturing into horror territory. Mr. Toilet Man is this kind of blue, furry toilet monster with the voice of Mel Brooks. But he's just, he's horrible. Somebody in the studio must have said, oh, yeah, Mel Brooks, he's great. We'll get him to do this character. He was a bit curmudgeonly, aggressive, but in a fun way. But no, Mr. Toilet Man is just this bombastic, nasty arsehole. He's trying to snatch people's bodily fluids. I guess on one level, it's an interesting concept about how kids view certain things. But it's just bloody nightmarish. It's this toilet that is basically haranguing this kid to have a slash. I struggled watching this film as a child because of Mr. Toilet Man. It surprised me. I did not see it coming. I did not expect it. And I was really freaked out. I don't know how I got through this movie. And then obviously I'd watched it a few times over the years because I was a fan of the franchise. Don't shoot me. But (laughs) (laughs) I honestly don't know how I got through it. Because it's weird. This film has a lot of uncanny valley, for sure. It's it's a very, very strange one. So in the first movie, Molly has a like, physiological birth. In this movie, she has a cesarean birth. And again, it's the way it's portrayed, I don't think it's in a positive light because 
it's really like over dramatic it's very bright in the room it's not like I think the way we've tried to view birth nowadays is to make it positive and even if it is a, a c-section birth you want the mum to feel as relaxed as possible but oh no here it's all like oh everything is like rushing it's an emergency bright lights and then you've got John Travolta fainting at the sight of blood I just don't think this sequence really belongs in a kids movie either because you just see them pulling out these really big horrific sharp instruments as well to imply no, she's being cut open and you see bits of blood on that. I, I just don't understand where this film is coming from. Yeah, they're trying to play it for laughs. But let's be honest, she's having a C-section. You can't play that for laughs. It's insensitive as fuck. I'm sorry. Yeah. You can't <laughs> say anything other about this sequence and that, that it shouldn't have been there or they should have reshot it, done something else. Why are they going here? There's no reason other than to terrify the audience because if somebody has not experienced it or has not been in that kind of situation before i'm feeling for the people who watch this movie then thought well what the hell happens if i get in there and i have to have a c-section because it doesn't portray any of it in a calm or positive light it's a terrible sequence and it's it's terrible to a point where I mean, I wasn't going to switch it off because we had to watch the rest of the movie. But <laughs> but I was like, at that point, because uh, I'd kind of vaguely remembered it, but it's not a movie I go back to often. But after that, I was pretty much on the edge of like, oh, fuck this movie. Fuck this movie. Yeah, I don't blame you. So when I was pregnant, I did a hypnobirthing course. And what was interesting, the subject that came up was very much be careful what you watch. Do not watch anything that will upset your mind about birth. The example they actually gave was Friends, where Rachel has the baby because it's, again, over-dramatised and she's in labour for hours. They just make it to be this really prolonged experience. And, yeah, it can be for some people, I'm not saying, but it's just the way it creates anxiety, and a lot of films do this. And I remember when I was watching these films recently for the purpose of this podcast, thinking, thank God I didn't watch these while pregnant because it would not have been a good vibe at all. And I would say that to any pregnant woman, just steer clear of Look Who's Talking films until after, because then you can just not stress about it. But it, yeah, I just did not like how it's portrayed. And I know it's dated, but it's just, it's just not. It just doesn't work. At best, it's tone deaf. At worst, it's irresponsible. Neither is good. You know, it gets to the point in the movie and then they kind of just brush it off. Basically, it's like everything's fine after it. It's like after all the, the shouting and the lights and the fainting and all of this stuff. Next sequence, it's like it never happened. Yeah, everyone's so, happy. Baby's yeah. here, which is great. But yeah. you don't see like the after effects of how the woman has it. I mean, I know this isn't meant to be a really detailed film or anything, but I think, as you say, it's irresponsible if you're taking on a subject like pregnancy you need to be responsible in your approach to it. It just doesn't have that at all. We don't see the after effects of a woman who has had a C-section birth. We don't get that from it, which would have been an interesting thing to look into. In my opinion, that would have fleshed it out a bit more. And I think it would have added more to the fact that there is all this conflict between Molly and James in this film. Yeah, they completely missed out on that. And you don't have to hit people over the head with this sort of stuff. You can do it in a not a kind of laugh out loud amusing way, but you can make it into a plot point and you can deal with it in a sort of lighter way than you 
you know, would normally have done without having to denigrate any of the plot points either. But no, they just move straight on. The main thrust of the plot is the fact that James is feeling undervalued and Molly's parents are having a go at him for not earning enough money, so it's creating tension. There is one line that I think doesn't make it into all of the versions of this movie, and it's quite mean as well, actually. It's this line where Molly's trying her best with him, but James is very mad, and, and he thinks he's being emasculated in some way, and he says something along the lines of, oh, yeah, you should just get me to wear a fucking dress. And I guess on a dramatic level, it kind of shows you where they are. But again, I think that's just mean, that line. I don't think it belongs mm. in the sea. I only heard that line on this viewing because, again, I had Look Who's Talking To recorded, I believe, from Sky Movies from back in the day. So I think it was edited for TV. I'm pretty sure it was presented as a PG mm. on Sky Movies. So there was a lot cut out. And going into things that are cut out about this film, let us know in the comments if you have any information about this. So I remember, again, going back to the days of the IMDb uh, message boards, I do miss them, <laughs> RIP IMDb message boards, because I just love seeing you know, people discussing film. It, it's great in different perspectives. But I remember a, a thread where people were talking about a sequence in Look Who's Talking To where I believe it's meant to be James and Molly. I don't know if it's the kids, but I'm just going to go with it being James and Molly envision themselves as John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And I don't know what purpose this sequence had in the movie. I know that obviously they used the song Jealous Guy by John Lennon in it, but I don't know where this was supposed to fit in and what it had to do with anything. It was something to do with protesting, but I for the life of me cannot find any footage of this sequence. It seems to be one of those things that's verbally discussed, but no one has ever like uploaded a clip or it's not on the deleted scenes on the DVD. I'm really confused about it. Like, where has this information come from? Yeah, it might have been more interesting than the stuff they actually went with in this movie. Although there is an interesting theory about Amy Heckling possibly just trying to sabotage this as much as she could and just turn the movie into a literal monster. It's a movie I really dislike. I'm sorry, look who's talking to. I really dislike this movie because a lot of it is just not funny. It's vaguely unpleasant. Even the subplot where Molly's ne'er-do-well brother turns up, that's put there just to create a little bit more tension. They don't do an awful lot with it until very near the end. But the heart seems to have gone out of it. You could get a warm glow out of the first one, and it's got a little bit of a sentimental edge, but it's quite nice and it's sweet. This one, there's a nasty undercurrent that seems to be running in this movie, which it doesn't really need at all. And you can tell that a movie is struggling when it chucks montage after montage after montage in. There's so many musical montages in this. Some of them kind of rescue the movie by virtue of the fact that John Travolta is on screen. He does an all shook up rendition in the daycare centre, which is quite fun. But it's nothing to do with the rest of the plot, really. Again, they're throwing things in like they did in the first one, but whereas some of them stuck in the first one, almost nothing works in this movie. And even at 80 minutes long, you're kind of thinking, when is this movie going to get out of here? Because it outstays its welcome fairly early on. You enjoy two characters from the first movie and you get to see them again, 
and you get about 25 minutes into look who's talking to and you think well i did anyway i think i do not fucking care what happens to anybody in this movie now because they've done it in the first one they could have drawn a line under it at the end of the first one i don't need to see these people again they were happy it was cool now you're just dredging things up to throw things in their way it's completely inconsequential i've got no stake in this movie now i just dislike everything in this movie that they're trying to do except gilbert gottfried I was about to say the same thing because <laughs> upon a rewatch, he is literally the only saving grace of this film. I love Gilbert Gottfried. He has no business being a baby gym instructor. I don't know how his character got the job, why he wanted to work with children, because he clearly hates children. <laughs> and, and then the movie is basically him just like ranting and, and trying to stop the kids basically having fun in this baby gym because they're going to give him a heart attack. He just can't cope. And then out of nowhere he relies on John Travolta to just give him a hand it's just very random and of course you get the all shook up sequence which you have to have an obligatory John Travolta dance sequence in the first one it's walking on sunshine which redeems the uh, dreadful walking on sunshine musical that we've previously covered for me after hearing that it's uh <laughs> it the bad taste in my mouth but yeah Gilbert Gottfried he's very minimal in the film but you know he has a uh, screen presence he does, and he's the best thing about the movie. Even though he shouldn't be there, and even though he's clearly just thrown in because it's Gilbert Gottfried, he does rescue that bit of the movie. It made me laugh. He's not vibing with the kids at all. He really shouldn't be there, which makes it even funnier. And the fact that he's just saying random stuff, it's great. It just gives you a glimpse as to if the movie had gone completely bonkers, it might have worked. Apart from that, it's all very half-hearted. And one of the weird things about the movie is that the first movie, the kid obviously isn't talking much, but you can hear what's going on in its head. In this movie, you can see the kid talking, but you can still hear the voice as well, which is at odds with what's happening. The kid is saying something, but then Bruce Willis is saying something completely else as, as the sort of psyche of the kid. And it just doesn't work. Have the kid talk less because you either hear the kids dialogue or you hear bruce willis you can't see them both at the same time on the screen it just makes things odd again that's another way that this completely fails because you know you get a kid who now can sort of form words and do a few bits of sentences but you still hear bruce willis talking about things and it's it's slung together this movie it's not made with an ounce of the care that the first one was and I can appreciate why it may have not been made with the care that the first one was, but it feels like a cash-in sequel, which I'm I'm sure it is, but everything about it, it's just like, right, let's go through the motions, let's get to the end of it. Even the jeopardy at the end is overdone because there's a fire at the apartment and the kids are trapped inside and Molly's brother has gone to try and apprehend a burglar. Even that's overdone. But it's overdone to a point... And then they kind of say, oh, well, we're going to have to resolve this. All right, they're all right now. Okay, so where was the jeopardy then? Everything is just kind of, yeah, that'll do. And it won't do. It won't do a look who's talking to. Go back to the first one. See what worked in the first one. Don't just do a cash-in sequel and then think somebody's going to sit there and at the end of it go, oh, I didn't mind that at all. Because it's not. It's just, 
it's lazy. It's lazy filmmaking. Look who's talking to. And that is the that is the worst thing I can level at a movie. I don't mind movies that are bad. I don't mind movies that don't work. But what I do mind is movies that are lazy. And look who's talking to is really, really fucking lazy. And that was your rant for this episode, everybody. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things for me. I'm wondering why they changed the kid actor. I'm guessing the original kid might not have been available. I don't know. It's really strange why they have changed the kid, but not made him look anything like the original kid. It's, it's just jarring. It's really odd. And I suppose same with the baby Julie as well. It's clearly a different baby in the other scene. I suppose timing and stuff. But again, it just doesn't feel like it's the, the same kids. It's it's so weird. It's like in a soap opera where they change actors for like the, the child characters. And also going back to Molly's brother, this time around, I did not see the point of this character because he's just there to make bad Robert De Niro impressions and nothing else. And he's barely audible. You can't really understand what the guy is saying. I don't get the purpose of his character on, on this rewatch, even less so. It was it was strange. And then you have this really forced plot where Molly's best friend, Rona, she features in the first film and she's quite a good character in it. Someone that Molly can confide in. It's like her confidant. They bounce with each other well. But they really portray her as, oh, she's desperate to find love. And then she's having all these bad dates and everything. And then suddenly she gets together with, with this like dickhead who happens to be Molly's brother. And he's just got no charisma or charm about him. He ha- sleeps with a gun. He's irresponsible around the children. He basically leaves them in a burning apartment because he's gone out to play the hero to fight a burglar who just randomly turned up. None of it makes sense. And, and you just sat there feeling flat. And I really do wonder what fans of the original thought when they came out that movie theatre in 1990 after witnessing the abomination that is Look Who's Talking To. Well, a big part of me hopes that they thought it was shit because I did. <laughs> the guy, the brother guy, he's a complete deadbeat. And Rana, who is portrayed as quite a fun-loving woman in the first movie, who's, you know, she dates a lot of guys, but she's fine with that. But they've turned her into this, if I don't find a man, like I'm going to die, basically, in the second one. She's not like that in the first movie at all. So they've completely retconned her character for the second one, just so that they can squeeze in this basic romantic subplot. But they don't even really do any of that. I mean, they gaze at each other a couple of times. They have a bit of a to and fro in the apartment. And at the end, basically... What you get is that Molly's deadbeat brother ends up with Rona by default, more or less, which, well, it fits the general laziness of this movie. But, oh, God, God, this is it gives me. Well, no, I was going to say it gives me no pleasure to rip into this movie, but it kind of does because it's no good. Oh, and they repeat the exorcist joke again. Kirstie Alley is about to go into labour and she's in the middle of a very boring meeting. It's the one, it's the eat me raw meeting, but she's wanting things to get sorted and she growls at them, which, yeah, it's fine. It worked in the first one. It was funny, but you've done it again and didn't need to hear that joke again. It was okay first time round. It was just not going to work the second time round. Yeah, definitely. And again, it just feeds into that whole dramatisation of labour. I mean, you know, I don't think women bring out exorcist voices in the middle of labour. I mean, some might, I don't know, not my experience. (laughs) But 
it's not funny. It's not funny second time round for sure. So I may have potentially discovered a Mandela effect surrounding the who's talking to. It's probably just me misremembering, and I fully accept that. So there is a scene where Molly and James have separated, and James is looking after the children, and he decides to take them to the movie theatre. I'm pretty sure it is the same movie theatre that they used in the first one, when Molly goes on the date with the toupee guy. I think the uh, exterior of that looks the same. Yeah. Anyway, so he goes into the theatre and there's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie playing, Total Recall. And funnily enough, that film features Arnie uttering the line, look who's talking, which was apparently meant to be a tie-in TriStar. Just thought they were being hilarious at the time, clearly. So James goes in and he pretends that Julie's lost her shoe. So he's like, oh, my kids left their shoe in the cinema. Can I just go and find it? And then he gets Mikey to shout about popcorn. So they get free popcorn. And the scene just ends on the DVD version I have. And I believe, Darren, uh, the version you watched, the scene just ends. It does, yeah. As soon as they get the popcorn, they kind of head towards the movie theatre. But then it moves on to the next bit of plot. Yeah, so for some reason in my mind, I recall a scene where he walks into the cinema, Total Recall is playing, and you see him sneaking on the back row with the children and they start watching it. Don't know where that came from in my mind, but I genuinely thought, oh, that scene ended prematurely. Was there meant to be something else? It's interesting because... In the run-up to it, he's talking about whether or not they should go to see the Arnie movie. So John Travolta does the Arnie voice said, uh, see my movie. But then he decides that it's not kid-friendly and he decides not to take them in. But leading up to the fact that he's got into the movie with a nefarious scheme and he hasn't paid for the tickets, them sneaking in to see Total Recall would have been actually quite funny. So part of me hopes that that does exist somewhere because it's got more invention and laughs than the rest of the movie. And it's the sort of the thing that James might do, but on the other hand, he's a very good dad. So is he going to take two very young kids in to see an R-rated movie? Probably not. However, having said that, I saw Face Off in New York and a couple brought in a very young child to see Face Off which I think is completely inappropriate. Wow, yeah, so you wonder. But I think going back very briefly to this chat, we've had about Mandela effect in the past as well. I think, you know, it's the build-up of the scene. It's John Travolta referring to Arnie. It's the suggestion that they're going to go in and watch it. It doesn't actually happen, but maybe somewhere in my head, that's what happened. What I'll have to do is unearth my um, VHS copy. It's probably terrible quality right now and just run it on and see if I can find that scene. But I, I highly doubt it. It's again, it's like the John and Yoko scene. No footage of that exists as far as I'm aware. Please let us know if you remember anything different about Look Who's Talking To because it'd be interesting to find out. Yeah, definitely. Also, let us know if you know of any scenes in Look Who's Talking To that were deleted but actually were funnier than anything that's in the released version because there's pretty much naff all going on here in terms of laughs. <laughs> yeah, this is probably one of the worst sequels to a successful hit that's ever come out. 
and IMDb have given it a 4.6 out of 10, and it has a 13% tomato meter and a 32% audience score, so it's considerably lower than the first one. Again, this movie came out 14 months after the success of the first one, and it just had no place being made. They should have waited a good couple of years. I think audiences could have extended that hype a little more just for a better quality film because I just genuinely don't know who this movie was made for because it's not family-friendly appropriate and it's a bit too juvenile for adults as well. It's just very bizarre. It's I just don't really understand the tone of this film or what it was trying to achieve. And as I say, all I can think of is the director got really pissed off having to make it and just made anything to shut up the studios without any real thought for the fans. Because if they were thinking of the fans making this, they would have made a better quality movie. And this is just a cash cow, pure and simple. And it, it's awful. And I don't think I'd ever want to watch it again. On one hand, the soundtrack, though, again, it's very good. You've got a bit of Elvis in there. You've got George Harrison. You've got John Lennon. You've got Sonny and Cher. There's a lot of very well-known hits in this, so they must have had the budget to include those. The soundtrack is probably the only thing I can say about it that's of any quality, basically. And it's a shame that they made it under the circumstances that they did because the audience deserves better Amy Heckling deserves better as a talented writer and director. Everything came together in completely the wrong way for this movie. And them trying to rush it out on the back of a hit, it's almost never a good idea. I mean, they managed to do something pretty quick with Friday the 13th Part 2, and they got away with making a reasonably decent sequel in that case. But it's not going to happen all the time. It certainly didn't happen with Look Who's Talking to. It's, well, how shall I put this? It's a dreadful piece of shit, really. And I think with a slasher movie, it's quite formulaic. You can get away with it because there's, you know, general plot beats that you have to hit. But with something like Look Who's Talking, it's character driven and you need that development there. It's not going to work. It needed more time and we could have had a better film. I would have loved to have seen that better film. But saying that, the legacy of Look Who's Talking, it did spawn a short-lived TV series called Baby Talk that ran from 1991 to 1992 and featured Tony Danza as the voice of Mikey and it had none of the same cast from the film, but it was the same characters, I believe. And again, I've never seen the show, but obviously that came out straight after it. And then you had Look Who's Talking To... I don't really understand the purpose of having a TV show that doesn't feature the same actors from the original film. I think that's a bit strange, but there was that. And then, of course, there is a third film. They had a bit of breathing space. Amy Hecklin did not return to direct, but they had breathing space. It came out in 1993. The film is Look Who's Talking Now. It moves away from babies. But we're not going to discuss it too much in depth in this episode because... We are saving it for Mary Podmas. Yeah, so you just have to wait for later in the year for what we think about that one. As for this one, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to watch it again either because I've done it, I've talked about it on the podcast, I never need to experience it again. I am slightly tempted to try and track down the TV show, but I have got a feeling that 
it might be the sort of thing that makes me want to stick pins in my eyes. Well, there's only one way of finding out is to give it a chance. So I'm sure there's probably clips on YouTube somewhere. And talking about weird things linked to Look Who's Talking, if you go and watch the original rental VHS copy trailers, which someone has kindly uploaded to YouTube, they run some really bizarre competitions. It's like you can win Look Who's Talking sweatshirts and they have these random babies with big sunglasses on them. It's all very bizarre. I mean, I don't really understand who would want Look Who's Talking merch. It's a little bit obscure, but... There we are. They obviously thought they had something bankable going on there back in the 80s and early 90s. They did some very weird promotions around VHS tapes. It's quite a fascinating area of history. So it's nice to revisit that kind of more innocent time. But it's not particularly nice to revisit this movie. The one thing I will say about it is that Richard Pryor was supposed to be the original voice of Eddie. And I think his voice does appear on the odd trailer for this movie, but he was too ill to shoot it. God rest Richard Price I think he's amazing, but you dodged a bullet with this one, Richard. Definitely. And the original trailer, or the teaser trailer, I should say, for Look Who's Talking To, was clips of the original movie with the original kid just intercut with some scenes of um, Baby Julie. It was very strange. Just fits this movie entirely. It's a weird project which never should have come to pass unless they'd have taken a step back, given it a couple of years breathing space, but in its current state, well, in its state anyway, it's, it's a terrible movie. I can't dress it up any further it's so far away from the first movie in terms of laughs and entertainment it's dreadful i just hated pretty much every minute of it by gilbert gottfried yeah so you can just re-watch the gilbert gottfried sequences and that will entertain you basically more than the film in its entirety and of course there have been whispers over the years that Look Who's Talking will be back. They will either reboot it or there's talk of another sequel where it will feature Mikey as a parent. I don't know. I think they need to hurry up and make a reboot if they want to feature the original cast back in it because unfortunately some cast members have sadly passed away. So I think they need to take the opportunity now if they can, but I don't really think that it's a huge necessity to have another sequel to it. I think it's very much a product of its time. So either way, I'd be kind of interested to see if they were going to reboot it. But at the same time, I'm not in a rush to see that either. Yeah, I'm not going to be queuing up for it. I think curiosity would lead me to end up seeing it. But I'm not going to be first in line if they stuck it out of the cinema. If you've been on a nostalgia trip with us for the Look Who's Talking films, just let us know what you thought of them back in the day, if you've rewatched them, what are your thoughts now, or if you're new to the franchise, I think you must think you're coming into some bizarre fever dream. But with that said, let us know your thoughts on the who's talking. I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 77 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to keep up to date with our future episodes and also check out our past episodes, you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. Episode 78 will be coming up after we've taken a bit of a break. But don't worry, we won't be gone for too long. 
and we will be back in time for the most wonderful time of the year. No, it's not Christmas, it's Halloween. I'm so excited to get into our Halloween content. We have a theme for you this year and I think we're not going to reveal it. I think we'll leave you in suspense. Yeah, that's fine. I'm okay with that. We'll just let you (laughs) hang for a while, but it'll be something I think you'll enjoy. So are we going to actually reveal the movie or are we just going to wait? I think we'll wait. Fair enough. In that case, next episode's movie is We're Not Gonna Tell You. So until then, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bay. You can find the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podchaser, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.